you are the podcast master. You guys know I'm around the toughest athletes in the world every single weekend. Week in, week out, the toughest athletes on the planet. My guest this week might be tougher than all of them. And I'm not just talking about physically. I'm talking about mentally, emotionally. This is such an awesome human being that I get to sit down and uh, have a conversation with this week. His name is Dustin Snow. He is a very prominent part of the TX Whiskey brand and family. We met through TX Whiskey and Boot Campaign's partnership. Got to sit down, hang out, really got to know each other. Um, Such an interesting human being. And I think a guy that has the power to change a lot of people's lives. You're going to want to really pay attention to this episode of the podcast, okay? I'm going to break it to you now. It's a two-parter. So the next two episodes, you're really going to want to pay attention to. I'll tell you, not for the faint of heart, though. This is not one you want to set and listen to with the kids. So we get into some very, very heavy conversations. Um, That also means there's going to be some expletives. We're going to drop some F-bombs. So there's your warning. I'm just telling you up front, expect it to get very, very heavy in this conversation. Um. But if you can finagle your way through a couple of uh, expletives, certainly worth taking the time to listen because it's such an interesting story. Um, Dustin Snow, he's a black belt Brazilian jiu-jitsu professional fighter. He is a combat veteran. He is one of the guys that makes that TX whiskey so good and has his share of trials, tribulations, and most importantly, triumph and overcoming adversity, overcoming some of the things that a lot of people would have gave up on and just said, you know what? I don't like the hand I'm dealt, but let me tell you something. This guy is the definition of toughness, both mentally and physically. So I hope you guys enjoy the episode. If you're not already subscribed, make sure you do that. Make sure you drop one of those five-star ratings and leave us your comments in the comment section of wherever you find podcasts. I want to know what you think specifically about this episode, but about the podcast in general. So hit us up, let us know what you think, and um, I appreciate all the screenshots. Continue to screenshot and post. That's the way we continue to get it out to the the rest of the world. And I'm telling you that because not because I want the ratings, not because I want this to get wildly popular or anything like that. I want to help people. And I think that these episodes can truly make a difference in somebody's lives. Even if it's that one person looking for an outlet, that one person looking to find somebody else that's been through something similar to what they've been through. That's why I encourage you guys to screenshot, tag us so that we can share and continue to get the word out about the podcast. I also want to get the word out about my friends at Beck's Sunglasses. If you're not already, give them a follow at Beck's Sunglasses on Instagram and all the forms of social media. But I want to save you some money while we're doing that. So when you log on to Beck'sSunglasses.com, make sure you use the code MATT. It's simple. I'll spell it for you. Write this down. M-A-T-T. When you get to the checkout part. Of the process. I'm going to save you some money. BeckSunglasses.com. Use the code MATT. Also, want to remind you about our friends at Western Sales Management. If you're a PBR fan, you know them as WSM Auctioneers. We've been talking about them for a while now. You can follow them on Instagram at WSM underscore Auctioneers. And it's almost the first of the month, which means we're getting close 
to their first auction of that month of June, second Saturday of every month. You can check out all the goods that they have. And it doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter what you're looking for. Chances are they've got it. Chances are you can get it to wherever you are. Make sense? It's that simple. Big online auction, second Saturday of every month. Compliments of our friends at WSM Auctioneers. I'm telling you, it's going to get heavy, but it's going to be worth it. This episode is a two-parter. And I really, really hope you get as much out of this as I, I think you will, no matter what your story is. I love this dude to death. I am incredibly honored that he took the time to tell his story. And um, I have a feeling we're going to do it again. So saddle up for the first half of my conversation with the great, mighty, powerful Dustin Snow. What do you, uh, what do you pour in there? I am pouring one of the last samples that I have of our 2020 port finished bourbon. And uh, this went on to go to the San Francisco World Spirits competition. Uh, I want to say, was it last month or the month before? And TX Whiskey got our first double gold for this particular finished bourbon and also our sherry finish bourbon but this is our port finish i don't i don't know a lot about it but i know that gold's really good so double gold has to be like exceptionally good it it is and at the san francisco world spirits competition like i don't think a lot of people realize how it actually works but like everybody gets a rating it's not like there's hundreds of bourbons and there's like bronze silver gold double gold it's like they taste it smell it whatever and then they give you a rating either no metal or bronze, like you get an A plus or a B. Right, B. everybody, yeah. everybody gets one. So, um, in in the finished bourbon, which is basically you have a bourbon mm-hmm. that um, you then put into a separate uh, barrel. A lot of times, wine barrels, and uh, specifically ours is uh, a port, uh, a Spanish port barrel, which is a, like a dessert wine. Okay, and uh, the other one was a sherry barrel, which is like um, also an after dinner kind of dessert wine, and some people cook with it as right. well. So um, I really like the port finish because I feel like it did a, a bigger magic trick to our bourbon than the the sherry. But you uh, you scared me a little bit because the bottle that you have it in it looks like uh, man it looks like it might be a little shady over there. Yeah, it does. It looks like uh, one of those. It looks like one of those wild west um, like medicine bottles. Whenever exactly, you would go in and you would tell the tell the the physician that you know you have an earache and he'd be like oh you got ghost in your blood <laughs> and you need to do cocaine and heroin We've because of it do something yeah i mean i'm, I'm assuming you, you can't buy that bottle specifically on the shelf no nope, that is it that one's mine so i'm gonna i'm gonna actually keep this as like a you know a little, little keepsake yeah so, but you can buy that, right? You sure can. You can. Yeah. You can uh, buy our port finished bourbon right now, sitting on the shelf uh, at pretty much anywhere. What's your title out there I, I, at TX Whiskey? Yeah, at I'm, TX Whiskey. I'm, I'm technically, if I handed you my business card, mm-hmm. it would say distiller on it. Okay. Um, so I, I do, um, I do know how to run our still. However, my more specific role for the company is I'm our mash man. Okay. And, and a mash man basically takes the grains. Well, I, I, I basically, I brew all of our various mash recipes for our different whiskeys. Okay. So I actually deal with the raw grains and process those down into like a flour using a mill. Because like, you know, everything about 
what happens. I mean, from start to finish. I mean, honestly, and it's so impressive to me, like to to come out there and to know that, like, you know, every little piece of the operation. Well, I'm learning. Uh, you know, I I certainly didn't have a background in this whenever I got into it, and um, you know, obviously, nobody can have a background in anything until right until they get into it. So I just um, and we'll we'll get into how I ended up with the company. Um, but I'm around a lot of really smart people um, and good people. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, you've been out to the distillery. We met. Should we explain how we even? Yeah, I mean, we we met. Well, and what's cool, you're actually wearing the boot campaign T-shirt I today. I, I love am. that shirt. So, so we actually met at the Whiskey Ranch, TX Whiskey, um, here in Fort Worth, Texas, because of boot campaign and TX Whiskey partnering up for what what I think is an incredible mm-hmm. opportunity um, for both brands to get a little more recognition. But most importantly, the biggest thing is giving us a chance to give back to veterans right which i know is important to you it's important to everybody at tx whiskey it's Mm -hmm. obviously important to me because um so anyways you and i let's let's use this term you and i were models we were we were models we were good ones photo shoot yeah a video shoot a photo shoot that lasted all day got me out of uh my wife just rolled her eyes most of my most of my work duties for the day so you know my crew at the the next day was like oh we having fancy uh like case lunch down there and stuff i was like yes i was uh and it's it's it sucks because i walked up there and i was like oh okay they actually did hire like a real model to come in here and do this stuff and then come oh, to the find models out. that were there? no I, I meant you and i was like man, oh, this no. good looking bastard and here i am like oh man this sucks i was like no i'm actually an operator in the distillery but they did if you remember they did have like those ladies that were there, yeah, 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 yeah. they were all, real models. She all was the females freezing were actually to death legit. the whole time. Yeah, one of them barely spoke English. Sweet yeah. girls, though. So yeah, everybody out there was so, so incredibly sweet. Yeah, uh, um, from the the ranch to, um, the boot campaign people yeah. to the models. Like it was such a fun day. And then I guess just in between, um, in between taking pictures and 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 uh, shooting video and stuff, we just got to chatting and i was like uh yeah you know i was i was in the marines i was uh with third amphibious assault battalion uh and um i also was a professional jujitsu fighter for the better part of 10 years quickly in my mind became like the most interesting man in the world (laughs) i was like holy crap this dude's done but but i love situations like that because you never know who you're going to connect with like who you're going to be friends with for sure there's so much of that stuff that happens that it's like you, you see those people one time and then boom you're out the door yeah sayonara never see you again and uh I guess, uh, you know, we just traded socials that day and, uh, you sent me a message and you were like, let's, uh, let's do do a podcast. And I was like, I was like, I'm all about doing podcasts. You know, I, uh, I love listening to all the podcasts that I listen to. And then I've done a lot of media with a lot of the professional fights that I've done. And then like you also, which is cool is, you know, you're a commentator announcer for Mm -hmm. the, for the PBR, which is like the league in your particular sport. And I am also a commentator and announcer for Fight to Win Pro, which is like the UFC of professional jujitsu. Which I'm super jealous of, by yeah. the way. Like I, I want to get into some some fight commentary okay. so bad. Yeah. I actually um man, I don't know if I should well, I mean, I guess it really doesn't matter. It's it's the truth. I actually had a, a little meeting with Dana White here a few years Ooh. ago. Like nice. when the uh Tuesday night whatever it was the contender yeah. series okay. started yeah they didn't have a host for it yet yeah 
And I actually was in an office with Dana and he nice. introduced me to the people I needed to meet. He was like, you interested in trying out? And I was like, of hell course. yeah. Like Let's whatever you want to do, Dana. And so anyways, nothing ever materialized. Like I didn't even get to audition for the job. Yeah. Um, and I don't remember. They hired somebody from like Major League Baseball Network or whatever, yeah. but I didn't watch it. I was I was sour. Yeah. Like I was super sour because yeah. I was like, man, that should have been my gig. Yeah. I just got the chance. Yeah, it was cool. I, uh, they're on like event a hundred and sixty or seventy yeah. now. Um and I was on uh Fight to Win Pro one, six, and twenty two. As a fighter. Yes. Really? Yeah. And it, it was super cool because before that there wasn't really and, and this is um twenty fifteen is whenever in Denver, Colorado, uh was Fight to Win Pro One. And before that, Fight to Win was what we would call an open tournament. Okay. And that's basically you go online, you register, you pay X amount of dollars, you know, 50, 60 bucks, and then uh, buy, and then you, you join in by your belt rank and by age. They have like, you know, kids divisions, then adult, and then they have like masters, which is like 30 and up, and then like executive, like 45 and up. Yeah. So that way you can compete right. as a 45 year old yeah. man within your respective like skill level and yeah. not have to fight. The, an 18 year old kid who's going to come out there and mop the floor. Keep with it you. within reason. Right, right, right. It's like, like boys shouldn't be fighting girls and girls shouldn't be fighting boys. Right. You know, yeah. whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> we can go down that. that hey, that, that's only far. my opinion. Yeah. And yeah, I think no, most of my opinion. It, re- it really is mine too. I mean, we could go into bone structure. We could have like a whole separate podcast on that it's alone. different. But, anyways. Anyway, so, uh, so fight to win, um, realizing that there wasn't much in the way of professional jujitsu at that time. Um, kind of just, he, our, the, the owner of fight to win is a guy named Seth. Um, and he, he wanted to be able to actually professionalize jujitsu and give it like the proper hat tip that it deserves with a big production value. And, you know, he, he's been pretty open about it. He pulled like a million dollar loan and he got like the laser lights and he got the elevated stage and the sound system and all production. that stuff, all that Started production stuff. Production around it. Yeah. And since then it's become like the premier Brazilian jiu-jitsu fight league. And, uh, yeah, I, I saw, so I was on one and six and 22. And then, uh, after that, I basically, um, like I'm 37 now, and uh, I think I've done about as much as I could possibly do. How how'd you fare on on those cards? Two and one. Okay, all right. Two and two one. Two wins. Two and one. Yeah, yeah. With the 2015 submission of the year, and I'll show you that later. Whenever, what? Whenever whenever we get to uh, the video, um, and uh, so I you know I I kept coming to the events, and um, I've refereed over the years thousands of matches, and so you know whenever you're watching jujitsu probably just like how whenever you watch the events that you do yeah there's kind of like this inner dialogue with yourself you're like oh he's doing this and he's doing that and this is happening and this is happening is and as a referee like that's something that like you're having to have very like acute attention to detail so it just made sense whenever he was like whenever we come to texas you know you can you can commentate these events so so how hard is it to like referee though like going from a competitive standpoint to now all of a sudden you're in a different position like well so like you'd have to kind of wind the clock back there's kind of like a story before that basically refereeing 
is um, it's difficult, and it seems like most of the fight leagues out there want you to have at least your purple belt, which is about six years in. Um, and uh, I think it's a great idea if there's anybody out there who is uh, practicing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu who wants to get better. Um, once you get about to your purple belt, most fight leagues will have you on as a referee. And it's it's hard. You know, it's like all day long, you know, you're standing up on your feet and you do a hundred to 150 matches in a day, just yeah. one boom right after the other. Cause you got to remember jujitsu isn't like MMA and the fact that it doesn't have multiple rounds. Right. It's like most jujitsu uh, format is like one six minute round, one seven right. minute round. And you Which have is a long time. It is a long time to, to fight, to, to fight, 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 fight for sure. So, uh, and, and it's just, um, you're awarding points as position changes. And if somebody doesn't tap somebody out with a, with a submission, then it goes to the points whenever time runs out. And then in some cases, if it's tied on points, the referee has to make uh, a decision. Um, it's stressful, but so I, you're like a referee, you're a judge. Yeah. You're, you're, I, I did it for a long, long, long time all the way until black belt. until I finally just got to the point where I was like, I can't do it anymore. So I don't, I don't ref anymore. So if anybody, any tournament leagues listening right now, I don't want to ref for you. (laughs) (laughs) Is, is there, is there a lot of money in jujitsu? That is a fantastic question. So this is actually something that I talk to fighters about a lot. And that is no, in Brazilian jujitsu, unless you're like at the top 10% of the world, there's not a whole lot of money to be made in the way of winnings from the actual tournament leagues. Okay. Sponsorships is a totally different thing. Um, whenever I went pro, which is about purple belt level, and whenever I say pro, what that means is, is I'm not doing these open tournaments anymore where I pay to show up gotcha. and, and do the yep. tournament. It's usually that tournament league will, at the end of the day, they'll, ha- they'll promote a eight-man pro round-robin invite-only Yeah where the, the league will send you, and in this case, I went pro with American Grappling Federation. And American Grappling Federation you know, sent me an invite, and they said it's going to be an eight-man. Uh, to, to even get invited, you have to have a very successful record in the open tournaments for yeah, gotcha. many, many you, years. You have to build a reputation. For sure. And then you, you get an invitation, for and sure. then you've got to perform, obviously. Right, right. And then I got an invitation to do this eight-man tournament, and... Um, Basically, the winnings for the tournament, I think, at that level was like a thousand dollars. Yeah. But I had already kind of been like, and I knew that. So I had already been kind of thinking, like, I need to secure some sponsorships for myself. But where I think I had a stroke of genius was where is where a lot of people who go pro in their respective sports feel like they need a sponsorship with a brand that is somehow like representative of that sport in the world. Yeah, exactly. Big mistake, big, big big mistake. mistake. And I was a purple belt and I had so many sponsors that whenever I went out to fight on my fight uniform and just like NASCAR, I had them like just stuck all over the place. You've got to look outside the box. hundred percent. I'm telling you, like there is not a sponsor that I wouldn't take. Right. Like if I, I had like I had like Joe I had like Joe's like lawnmower service you know what I'm anybody saying anybody that wanted to spend the money right right and and put a sticker I what I would do is I would be like if you want to if you want a small patch it's 150 bucks if you want a large patch patch 350 bucks 
And I would fill up my gi with all my friends that own companies, no matter yep. how big or small, they can write it off as like advertising. Bingo. Um, my tattoo company that I get my tattoos with, um, I was a personal trainer for a while, the gym that I was a personal trainer at. Um, my Anybody. Fir- my first karate coach owns a, a custom homes um, uh, business and he sponsored me. So yeah, I, I actually, as a purple belt, had like black belts coming up to me and they're like, dude, like, how do I get sponsorships? I'm like, well, stop thinking that you need to get like the world's best, like, you know, fight gear company yeah. to sponsor you. Yeah. Like you, you can get sponsored. Like it's money. Like who cares where the dollar bills came from? What makes sense? Yeah. And what makes sense most of the time is whoever's willing, you know? Um, and I love that. Like, don't be so hyper-focused on like, like in the Western sports world, rodeo and bull riding and everything, everybody's looking for, you know, Wrangler, American hats. Exactly. You know, like, like I wear finolio boots, all great, all great for me. But if you're really trying to just, you know, make some big waves, who says you can't go outside the box and like yeah. bring in things that aren't necessarily tied with the Western world? Like, yeah. um, you know, like I work with Cooper Tires. Mm-hmm. Cooper Tires is a huge company. Yeah. They're not necessarily a cowboy company. Yeah, but they got uh, plenty of dollar bills that are willing to sponsor somebody if they believe in it. They're them. good people and they and they believe in the sport, you right. know what I mean? And so yeah. like it's 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 just crazy cuz like as a kid, you probably never would have put a tire company as a huge partner with professional bull riders. Right. Well, now they're one of the biggest. Yeah. So Yeah, so I just didn't I didn't really didn't uh discriminate on who one who was interested in sponsoring me. I, I was sponsored by a pool hall. I was sponsored by, um, I mean, just, you know, anybody who wanted to help me, um, get to the, the venue, you know, put me on an airplane, right. you know, I would have one sponsor that would buy my plane ticket. I had another sponsor that would, uh, put me in a hotel and then, um, I would make, you know, uh, a couple thousand dollars win or lose. Right. And then whenever I would win, I would take home extra money. So through that, I did make uh, jujitsu a, a, a pretty good living for several years, and then eventually I got a big sponsorship, and I got put on like an annual salary. Oh, that's awesome! And that re- that's what really like helped me out professionally because I wasn't having to stress about where the money was going to come from. Yep. And that was like my entire time as a brown belt. And my entire time as a brown belt, I was just a fucking animal. Really? Like just an animal. Like I, I just like, I, I think I had close to 26 matches in a row that I didn't lose. Really? Yeah. But you think most of it was because you could just focus on Absolutely. training? Yeah. Cause I was on salary and my, what was really cool about my salary deal is that they didn't, they, they could have, said that you can't have any other external sponsors other right. than us basically just buying out, you know, exclusivity. Right. They didn't, yep. they said now they said wherever else you want to make your money, make your money. So I also had them plus all the other sponsors that I had accrued over the last several years. That's awesome. And so, um, I did really well as a pro jujitsu fighter, but you know, like everything and like everybody in every sport, you know, you get older and I, uh, I have, I'm a dad now, you know, I have, yeah. an, eight, I have an eight year old daughter and, um, I was starting to eyeball, like, what am I going to do long term? Yep. And, uh, I started doing some personal training on the side and I met the IT engineer for TX whiskey as a client, as a personal training client. Really? 
and uh, he was retired out of Lockheed Martin, and uh, he basically said, hey, we need a uh, another distiller for the company. I was like, I don't know anything about making whiskey, but um, my military background is very mechanical, and he's like, I think that's that'll probably do you pretty good. Really? So um, I got set up with an interview. I think the interviewing process was close to like six months long. It was like a lot of like, come here, talk to this person, come back, talk to this person. and So so like when you're going through that process, is it, are they just trying to get to know you or yeah. trying to see if you can pick up on everything? Right. all like of that. Everything. Yeah, all of that. Skills and, and, and all of it. Yeah, because I'm pretty, I'm pretty positive um, right now for the position that I have, it requires a, a four-year degree, which I do not have, or military service. So they, they want- Which you some, do have. Right. They want some kind of like, some kind of- Something that like stamps the paper that says like you're going to yeah. be able to pick up what we're what we're teaching you, and it's just I was very intimidated with starting over again, you know, at thirty what was it? it's been four years, so thirty two, thirty three years old. But I was also excited by it because like I mean like what guy doesn't like? And you've been to the Risky right. Ranch, like it's a gigantic like oasis of whiskey making on a golf course. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Like it, it's honestly one of the few places where I could just sit and just just sit outside just and sit do outside. nothing. Yeah, do nothing. Like we actually did for a little bit. Like I mean it's just beautiful. There's just ducks right? flying around. Great scenery overlooking downtown Fort Worth. The best view of downtown Fort Worth I've ever seen. It, and I live here and have been here my whole life. Yeah. It's crazy. So so you you get the the job eventually. Yeah, yeah I eventually get the job and I start at You don't know shit about making know. whiskey. No. <laughs> no. No, not at all. So like <laughs> at a rudimentary level, whiskey is made from grains. It's made from like wheat, rye, malt, or corn and combinations therein. Right. And I couldn't tell you the difference between a piece of rye or a piece of wheat. <laughs> I knew what corn looked like. And I was working at and whiskey ranch is not even built at this time. Uh we we have a small distillery uh with two pot stills. Mm-hmm. And you saw right. our giant forty foot tall yeah column still yeah and we have these two pot stills which look have you seen a pot still it kind of looks like a vase okay a big bulb yep. at the bottom yep with a big shaft up top gotcha and we had two pot stills and um i got brought on and they hazed the shit out of me for the first month just to see if i was even going to want to stay see if you'd stick around and of course like my military background i'm like no fuck this here we go like yeah. whatever y'all got let's do this yeah. um can handle it and then eventually they were like okay you're gonna be you're gonna train in mashing i was like okay so perfect that's where i wanted to be yeah i'm like okay great and and mashing in whiskey is kind of like a same term in beer making as brewing because a lot of people don't understand that you first have to make beer before you make whiskey before you turn it like it becomes whiskey you do make a beer but it's not a beer like in the sense of like coors light right exactly It's, it's actually called distiller's beer it's beer that's not meant to be turned into something that you drink di- directly. It's beer in the fact that it's fermented. It's even carbonated, and it's about eight percent alcohol. Like if you if it was it like smells like beer, it, yeah, it doesn't. And like it, it's a corn beer, yeah, essentially. And uh, so basically, you I, I I take the whole grains, rye, uh, or it, like if we're talking about our bourbon, it's, it has to be at least fifty percent corn to be bourbon. Yeah. And then several other grains can be introduced after that. Usually wheat or barley or rye and barley. Yeah. And our our bourbon, the one that's sitting on the shelf, is um, is a is a weeded bourbon, and See, that that's our flagship bourbon. And and 
obviously it's good because I feel like every time I turn around, it's starting to pop up everywhere. Like yeah. I see that TX bottle everywhere we go. Which is a good thing. It certainly is. It certainly is. And so how long? Wait, how long did it take you to to grasp making whiskey and and, and to to grab this concept, not knowing anything about it? It's it's very amazing. I'm you assuming assume. you were pretty good at drinking before it. Yes, definitely. But, but, but making's but different. I think it's amazing that you assume I do grasp how to make whiskey. Still, <laughs> <laughs> I I do. I I, I learned from a lot of really good guys. Um, our head distiller uh, or master distiller, Rob Arnold, is working on his PhD dissertation right now. He's like a plant geneticist. He's like one of those people that you're like, I'm going to need you to slow down when you right. talk to me because I'm a dumb gorilla. Like, I need you to like put this like Barney style. But, um, you know, like, I think I really subscribe to that. Like, it takes like 10,000 hours of any given thing to achieve mastery. Really? And I am about halfway there at this yeah. point. So I have a real good understanding of what I do in mashing. Mm -hmm. So basically like I, I, I mill the grains and I introduce in, in a cooker, which is steam injected with water and enzymes. And then I transfer that over to a fermenter and I oversee the fermentation. So that way it ferments in a way that we hit our, our uh, goals as far as how much alcohol is created. Right as well as our flavor profiles are hit as well. And then once that's done, I start back over again and I pass it off to another one of the two guys that we have, Sergio and Manny, who actually run the still and distill. Now I'm trained on the, dis on the, on the right. still. I can, I can do it all, but we all kind of specialize a little bit. Well, to me, like the whole process, cause we've got to see the whole process. It's like, I don't think people recognize and realize what happens behind the scenes yeah. because you think of the different flavors you think yeah. of, you know, that flavor is specific. Mm -hmm. It has been sought out. Yeah. It's been perfected yeah. and you have to hit that mark. every. Yeah. It's like, so like the folks at American Hats, if you go and you walk through that factory, you see every single person knows exactly what they're supposed to do with every hat body, with everything that goes through that process. It's, it's, it's perfected yeah. and it has to reach that level because, I mean, you're looking at a big operation here. Like, there's a lot of alcohol going through there. That's the, that's the largest distillery, not just in Texas, but west of the Mississippi. That's crazy. So out of 23 states. And the only time that you're going to find a larger whiskey distillery is if you get over into Kentucky right. and Tennessee and things, Which and things like that. Which kind of goes without saying. Yeah. Because that's all they do out there. Right. And, they, yeah, they have for, for forever. But Texas. They drink whiskey, make whiskey, and breed horses. That, I mean, that's pretty yeah. much all they're yeah, doing. Exactly. It's great. I love it. Yeah. And uh, it, so. It's basically the Fort Worth of yeah, the East. It is. It's is great. what it is. It's great. So, and then after, uh, after the whiskey is distilled, um, we barrel it. And then it goes and takes a four-year nap in our barrel barn. And then after that, um, we have um, our quality and don't, mixing team. Don't brush team. over that because that, that fascinated me that every single barrel of whiskey will go set for four years. Yeah. Yeah. To, and that's another one of those legal parameters to be able to say you have a straight bourbon is mm -hmm. that it has to sit for at least four years. Really? Yeah. And a bourbon can be two years, but a straight bourbon has to be... Two years, or excuse me, four years. So, so how do you start to prepare for like? You have to kind of know what the market's going to do four years from you now. You do, you do, and that and that's that's another department, you know, right? Uh, and that has a lot to do with our marketing team. But we have um, we have Allie and Shannon who are our blenders who 
they'll basically kind of like on a day whenever we don't have as much going on, they'll give us a list to of sampling that we need to do. And we mm-hmm. go out to the barrel barn with a, uh, a headlamp on because it's dark out there. Yeah. You can't have too many lights inside of a barrel barn or much electronics moving through a barrel barn because all the liquor inside those barrels is at 130 proof. And 100 proof is flammable. Jeez, so 100 I think about that. Yeah. There is an and epic... And you're surrounded by it. Yeah, so there's a lot of extra procedural things that have to go into the inside of a barrel barn. So not just drinking, but making whiskey is also dangerous. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And we deal with steam and pressure and highly caustic chemicals and all kinds of good stuff. But that's not that's nothing for you. Well, with we'll get into my back, military with, experience. With, I was going to say, with your background, yeah. that's no step for a high stepper. No. So Okay. So now how long have you been at TX Whiskey? Four years this September. As we come into okay. September, it'll be my fourth year. So you're starting to see your first batch of babies start to kind of come, come through. Up. Yeah. I, haven't, I haven't seen them yet, but I know where they're at in the yeah. barrel barn. I, do you know where my barrel is? I signed a barrel the day we were the one No, of the and, we I, were and I'll tell you why. Because whenever, whenever we had the old distillery where we mm-hmm. had the two pot stills, like I was just talking about, we would only barrel about 12 barrels a week. Really? Like we would only make enough what we call white dog. White dog is the actual spirit coming off the still as it's separated from the, the grain mash, okay, the, the beer it, mash. Is, and it's, it's clear. Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize that whiskey is clear at first. It only gets its color after it goes into a charred barrel mm-hmm. and is then after that harvested. Yeah. Um, we were only doing about 12 barrels a week. Okay. Now at whiskey ranch. Okay. And let me also put this into perspective. Whenever I would cook a batch of our weeded bourbon mash at the old distillery, which yeah. was called 901, 90, at 901, I was cooking 1,000-gallon batches okay, three times a week. I now cook- 1,000 gallons. Three times a week. Three times a week. So 3,000 gallons a week. Right. Okay. Of whiskey mash, which of that, only 8% of it is- is, is pure okay. alcohol. So so you're knocking Just, this down like yeah, exponentially. Yeah. At Whiskey Ranch, I cook three 16,380 gallons per week. That's insane. So we went from barreling 12 barrels that go into the barrel barn to be mm-hmm. aged a week to approximately 120 barrels. So we like 10, like went up by a, a factor of yeah. 10. So so 120. So basically, barrels. I don't know where the hell your barrel is now because <laughs> the one that you signed is a fucking. Who knows where the hell? That I thing. do know that I have a barrel in the back of my car right now. Yeah, I actually we just came from the whiskey ranch and uh, we actually have a barrel in the rig right now that's yeah. going back to Oklahoma. With but you me. signed one that's now aging inside the barrel yep. barn. Now I yep. can tell you if it's legible, where I can actually tell that it's. Oh yeah, your yeah, signature. you can tell where mine is. Whenever yeah. it, whenever we harvest that. Four yeah. years from now, yeah. what they'll do is they'll get you a bottle out of that, yeah. and then we'll make sure and we'll get it to you, and they'll probably give you the barrel too. Yeah, that's I, I want that barrel. I, I just because like I'm still a little kid, so like everything oh, I so get cool. to do in life, like yeah. never thought I'd see that kind of stuff. Much yeah. less put my name on a barrel that, that yeah. is going to go set. It's it's crazy. It's, it's crazy. Insane. And we are currently building our second barrel barn right now. Really? Yep. Because we filled up that first one, uh, eighteen thousand barrels. Uh, Whiskey Ranch has been open eight. 18,000 barrels. Yeah, 18,000 barrels is close to, uh, yes, about 18,000 barrels is what it takes to fill up a uh, wow a five-story tall Rick house. That's crazy. Yeah, That's it really a lot is. Of whiskey. Mm-hmm. But I mean, 
like I said, you're seeing it everywhere. Yeah. So you've got to be able to fill those bottles. Yeah. One of the coolest things about going to like any liquor store and it, it, like, and I travel with from either just jujitsu mm-hmm. or a lot of stuff has to do with jujitsu for me. Um, but I can be in Colorado. I can be, you know, um, pretty much anywhere. I'm walking to a liquor store and especially if it's like in that after work rush hour between yeah. like five and seven where people are like going to the grocery store, going to the liquor store, getting what they need for the night. There's always some poor sap on his knees just trying to keep the TX like stocked on the and, and, the, and we also have so much real estate on the shelf. I mean, yeah, you know, where a lot of brands have, you know, a couple bottles yep. to the left and to the right, at least in Texas anyways, like we have like this massive right. thing. And uh, yeah, people in Texas are prideful. Oh God! And if they see something that has Texas on it, yeah, or, or that they can immediately associate, that's their choice. And and they've, and, I love that. And even the bottle is attractive. You know, like the bottle yeah. is so ridiculous, like so ridiculously well thought out. You get a sense of pride, like when you see it on the shelf. I love it. Yeah, absolutely love it. I've loved the company since the time, like the, the moment that I started with it, and then since like they paired up with Boot Campaign and and really took that military angle, that always has a a near and dear effect with me. So, okay, let's talk about that. The bottle, the boot campaign bottle. I just, uh, yeah, I mean that bottle, it. like all the bottles, like look really, really good. The original, the original bottle that just the TX blend bottle, whenever they were envisioning, like what they wanted to do, like to make it unique, just like, like a couple homages to the, like the Prairie days, uh, yeah. uh, the frontier days. Like there's that canvas neck wrap that has to do with, uh, like the wagon, you know, the, the canvas covered wagons mm-hmm. as they pushed West across, uh, you know, across the frontier. Um, there's a, there's a silver, there's a silver kind of, um, uh, band around the bottom of the bottle that was also kind of supposed to be like a hat tip to boot spurs and gotcha. um, just all kinds a lot of, of stuff thought went into it. Even, even some of the designs that are on that bottle are what you would see in a lot of like, what do you call it? Tack. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. There's a lot of that uh, like leather, like imprintation yeah. on, on the, on the bottle that you see. And it's funny. I, you I mean, really don't know shit about cowboy. No, life, I don't know shit. And you're man. born and raised in Fort Worth. I know. I love it. No, I I, 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 grew, I grew up on Nine Inch Nails and Pantera. I told you, <laughs> I, I I really can't stand country music whatsoever. But I I hang out like up at the stockyard just because I know people, and, and it's and, and that's crazy to me because I got to figure that the majority of of your clientele are all people that uh, listen to country music, a hundred percent, and drink whiskey, a hundred percent, yeah, and either raise hell or, or yeah. drink their sorrows away. It's one yeah. or the other. Yeah. I, I was always I was always into heavy metal and electronic music and stuff like that. Even though I was just born, I you know I like '80s music like uh, like Depeche Mode and yeah. Duran Duran. Oh, yeah. I'm just like one of those kind of weird kids. So I love Metallica. Yeah, love Metallica. Did you see that uh, concert that they played in Antarctica, like on a glacier? What? I'm like, how did they get power out there? Man, it's just like like those big tours that they went on, like overseas in different countries, yeah. where people that didn't even speak the language would sing every word, and it was almost like a cult yeah. in a stadium, a hundred thousand people just singing Metallica. It's like that's powerful, well, dude. They're, they're like they're like Michael Jackson big. Oh yeah, you know? oh yeah, yeah. They, they have reached a level that. I don't know if anybody ever truly expects that it's possible to reach that level. No. Like few people, like Garth Brooks, you know, Elvis, uh, Metallica, things like that. You only get that popular now, like in death. Yeah. Like, 
Yeah. Chris Cornell, God rest his soul, like, you know, Nirvana. Soundgarden. Kurt Cobain. Yeah, they just... bigger after... Yeah, absolutely. Um, Scott Weiland from Stone Temple Pilots. Man, the grunge era has taken some hits. Yeah, that whole little genre right there. Whew. I mean, they, they talk about creative people and how, how many demons they have. Yeah. Thank God I'm not creative. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I got plenty of demons and I'm not creative at all. <laughs> and, you know, like... Uh, a lot of that sound came out of uh, a Seattle. Yeah, and which, uh, have you spent much time there? I've never been I to Seattle. Miserable and depressed too. Exactly, which is it, it, like there's so much like heroin abuse out of that '90s era Seattle scene. Yeah. I, I look, and and I may be completely wrong on this, but I genuinely believe weather has a lot to do with with those kinds of things because. Me personally, I go somewhere where the sun's shining. I'm in a great mood. Yeah. On those rainy days, it's easy to get down and start, you know, yeah. spinning in a spiral. Yeah. Well, you know, it's always it, rainy. Up it, there. It's 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 also funny because have you heard about like the amount of cocaine they find in the United Kingdom, like in the public water supply? I don't do much cocaine research in the United Kingdom. I'm sorry. Well, this I is, will try to step that part of I, my game. I I, I I I I collect fine information and facts. Yeah, Megan said, your Google search, I bet, is a trip. Yeah. <laughs> so as it turns out, and this is a fact, uh, in the United Kingdom, because it is so gray and rainy all the time, yeah. Yeah. that people are compensating with like a ridiculous amount of cocaine used yeah. to the point that as it passes through their bodies and eventually flushed down the toilet and makes its way to the public water treatment, they can actually detect it. Really? Yes. Well, uh, because I, I'm sure Megan said, how, "How are people not dying?" Well, it's going to be such a small trace of yeah. But 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 okay, let's bring that back. To, let's bring that to the United States, though. Yeah, because that same type of thing is happening on a different level here with all this COVID stuff that's went on the last year. Right, people being forced to stay in their homes. Right. drug drug abuse is running rampant. Yeah, exactly. you know, domestic abuse is running rampant. Uh, I mean, like that shit's real. Yeah. When you start to put people in a box, yeah. they start to try to fight their way out of it. And, they do. and unfortunately, a lot of times drugs are their way. That- yeah. And, and like people need exercise and fresh air and they need to be under the sun. My God, you and should run have, for governor. Have a, have a few, have a few maybe vegetables. Yeah. Like there's they're, so much that can be done. They're with bribing just- people with alcohol, donuts and cheeseburgers to go get a vaccination. How oh unhealthy God. is our society? Yeah, it's 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 not good. I mean, exercise has definitely been the one thing that's been able to liberate me from my own personal problems. Same. Um and probably the reason being is like, you know, you can go work out and it's not going to fix everything that you have going on. But what it will do is that you're going to get that like serious amount of dopamine and serotonin, which is going to knock out the cobwebs in your brain. It's going to allow you the space you need to figure out what you need to do next. And you're not, like I said, it's, if you just go run, somebody's listening, they're going, oh, if I just go run right now, it's not going to fix all the shit that I have going on in my life. But like, yeah, maybe it might. But it gives you one inch closer to feeling that better. Yeah. I've never felt depressed at the end of a workout. No. Even when I, like, and I've told my story, I was super overweight in my early 20s. I I lost over 100 pounds. But in the beginning stages of my fitness journey, I would go work out. I knew I was out of shape. And I started to realize how bad out of shape I was. But 
even in those first few workouts, I never felt depressed. I always felt better always. at the end of a workout. It, it's impossible not to. Yeah, it really is because there's natural reward systems that in, in your brain that that are telling you like, yeah. I, I had a, a good friend, Coach Baxter, coach for USC. This week, he actually just said, you can't lie to your body or, or your body can't tell a lie. So you can say things in your mind, but your body is going to react to mm-hmm. the truth. Like, you know, Megan's talked about like when they're doing interrogations and things like that. And when yeah. they're, you know, talking to, to criminals, if they say, did you murder your wife? Guy might be saying no, but his head's shaking. Yes. Cause right. your body can't tell a lie. Yeah. Weird yeah, things, man. The, the the exercise has been absolutely instrumental in 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 getting me to where I'm at today. And uh, I mean, if we want to go like all the way back, like how the, like how all this started for yeah. me, as far as like the Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and the uh, the military, and then like I've always sought out to do really hard things. Did, okay, when did that start? Did that start as a kid? As a kid. And, and we're going to get into some heavy subject matter. If, yeah, we've got I, a we've yeah, got a little audience and, here but. and we have just that as a disclaimer. Um so if we take it all the way back and I had told you this before, um so whenever I was born, my dad was 54 and my mom was about 22. Okay. So, and this was in 83. And um my dad Which at that time was Crazy different. Yeah. And, and my dad had had four sons whenever he was in his 20s. So I had, as soon as I was born, I had like older brothers that were like 35. Adults. Yeah. With kids. Yeah. So I was like an uncle the day I was born, le- right. legitimately. You and, were an uh, uncle to a lot of people that were older than you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was, it was, yeah. it was pretty crazy. And um, so. I grew and my dad was a was an athlete and then he always uh coached me in all of my sports teams like I played baseball, I played football. I mean there wasn't like a sport that I didn't play. Right. But I always gravitated towards uh I took karate and I also uh was a Golden Gloves boxer and I I boxed out of a like a legendary Fort Worth like Golden Gloves boxing gym not too far away. Really. And uh, I just loved it. I just loved, and, and this was also during the time of like kickboxer and blood sport. Oh yeah, and stuff like that. All the Van Damme movies oh, and everything. Freaking loved it. Which did you like better, karate or boxing? I loved it both, man. Really, I loved it both. Um, I would I would learn tricks in boxing and then take it back to my karate class, and then they'd be like, "Oh, he's coming in with like these like straight like one twos and mm-hmm. and stuff." And then I would go back to boxing, and they would be like, "Oh, he's got really crazy footwork from karate." Gotcha. So I was just yeah. kind of like bouncing them off of each other. I was yeah. kind of like already mixing martial arts. Um, and then I guess it was about, and I went to private school here in Fort Worth uh, for a while from uh, pre-K all the way till about fourth grade. And let's see, I guess my parents got divorced whenever I was about eight years old, nine years old. Okay. So I get... Uh, uh, my, my parents split up and I'm still playing sports like all the time. And, you know, through, you know, a lot of kids go through a divorce. Right. And, uh, but I did never lose interest in like sports and that's all. And I can, looking back now, like hindsight's 2020, I, I can really see the benefit that I didn't know what exercise and sports mm-hmm. was doing for me then, but now I do. You're keeping your mind and your body busy. Yeah. And, and I, and I felt good all the time mm-hmm. and I, and whenever you work out, what happens next? You're hungry. So you're eating. What's one of the number one things people do whenever they get down, they don't want to eat. Right. They don't sleep good. Right. Like if you could wear your body out, 
you have to have you're gonna you're gonna eat and you're gonna sleep and your and and your neurotransmitters your serotonin your dopamine your oxytocin you keep all that stuff up it's gonna allow you to like plow through the the headwind Mm -hmm. uh, of challenges that was only the beginning of like the challenges for me like at that point in my life okay at about nine years old i was in private school i'm in fourth grade and uh i get a i'm in i'm in fourth yeah about fourth grade so my i'm at my dad's house this night um laying in bed about to go to sleep and get a phone call you know it's before cell phones right um get a phone call it's police department police department's like can't find your mom where's your mom at and he's talking to my dad mm-hmm. uh evidently one of my mom's best friends was supposed to have dinner with her that night and she didn't show up um, so I, we went up to my mom's house. We met a police officer, me and my dad. I think it's worth mentioning that I was at a football game for about three hours with some friends prior to this phone call. Gotcha. My dad was nowhere that wasn't I wasn't at been the able, game. wasn't at the game. Gotcha. So my, so we go up to my mom's house and I had lived there all my life and I was just kind of a crafty little shit. And mm-hmm. I knew how to take screwdrivers and pick the locks. Mm-hmm. All, well, it, her car's gone, and the police officer gives me like a Leatherman tool and some other tools, and I pick the lock. Go through the whole house, can't find anything. All the lights are off, nobody's there. Were you close with your mom at, the, at that time? Did you, you know? Stay close? I was uh, not as close as I was with my dad, okay. um, just because my dad coached me in all those sports teams like I was talking about. And you were living with your dad? It was uh, pretty much 50-50 okay. custody. He was just a couple blocks down the road. His apartment that okay. he moved into was just a couple blocks down the road. They had sought to try to keep it close, keep it close cool. to make things easier for me going back and forth. Very cool. And I picked the lock and we get inside the house and we don't see anything. Um, and then, of course, like go back home, go to sleep, go to school. Two or three days goes by. Nothing. No, no sign mm-hmm. of my mom. Uh, and then, of course, we get the phone call, and like my dad's on the phone with the police, and like I can see the fa- like I can see it like kind of wash over his face. Mm-hmm. And they found my mom; she was dead, and uh, she had obviously been murdered. And then I kind of just went numb right there. I don't remember having a gigantic emotional reaction to that. And uh, so I moved in, obviously full time with my dad, and about. Two years went by, and like evidently, this ongoing investigation is still going. My dad's not telling me any details. Yeah, of course, you didn't know about it. Like, not telling me any details whatsoever. I don't know exactly what's going on. I'm still playing sports. Like, and I think this is like the real message that I have is that like exercise really can be the liberating thing for a lot of people dealing with heavy shit. Mm-hmm. Well, I was in sixth grade now, and my mom had died whenever I was in fourth grade. So I was in sixth grade now, at the beginning of sixth grade. And we're, I remember we're, me and my dad, after school, he picks me up, and he takes me through the bank, and we're, like, going through the bank to, like, make a deposit or something. He's like, hey, son, you know, uh, we're, uh, we got to go to court um, next week. I was like, what do you mean we got to go to court? He's like, well, you know, they think I killed your mom, and, uh, and, and I need to go uh, – defend myself and just uh sprung it on you just like that yeah just like that um i don't th- think that he wanted me to have to live with that right every day right and uh, i don't blame him for that so 
he went to trial, lasted about seven days. Uh, they pulled me out of, uh, out of school for that. Uh, I stayed. So, like I said earlier, I have four older brothers that are now like in their deep 40s. Right. And uh, I basically was out of school hanging out with one of my four brothers during that time period until it came time that they wanted to, wanted me to testify. So I don't know what's going on like in the trial, mm-hmm. but I do know that I have to testify. So I go up and, you know, the, 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 pro, the, the defense attorney, I think, asked me some questions first. And then the prosecutioner comes up and he asked me some questions that I don't really have good answers for. Right. And back then, I couldn't re I couldn't I couldn't wrap my mind around why this guy was trying to make a bad guy out of my dad. Because yeah. you you're know? eleven. Yeah, I'm right? eleven, twelve years old, right. yeah, in sixth grade. And uh, but now I do, you know, obviously. Right. And uh, so on, like about the seventh day, like I went into the courtroom. They said the jury had reached a verdict. And my dad's 65 years old at this time. So were you sitting through any of... Were you in the courtroom? No. Just when you had to just sit on whenever the stand? I Right. Because That's they were it. presenting evidence and photos and things that I definitely did not want to see. So so where were you at during during this whole thing? Uh, like staying I said, with family? I, I'm staying you? with family. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm staying with family. And is, um, are, are you asking questions? Like, I'm trying to wrap my head around yeah. being, you know, 10, 11, 12 years right. old, going through this process. Yeah. Like, are you inquisitive at the time? Are you just like sheltered? Leave me alone. Don't Actually, talk about it. I'm really scared to death yeah. that the inevitable is probably going to happen. And that is that my dad's going to get taken away after right. I've already lost my mom. And me being such a dad, like a daddy's boy and like yeah. latched on to my dad and like all the sports that we had played together and trophies we had attained. And, you know, like I was really, like I said, whenever my mom died, I was pretty shell-shocked, I guess. I didn't really feel too much over it. But the the prospect of having to lose my dad now yeah. was actually, like I felt that full full force. Yeah. And because uh, when you lose one parent, you go, yeah, you 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 grab onto the yeah. other one, yeah. And um, so seven days later, uh, the the jury I think deliberated for six hours after the final closing arguments, and they came back guilty. And they gave my dad sixty years whenever he was sixty five years old. So obviously, that's right. that's a death sentence, right? Um, I moved in with my brother. Uh, my second oldest brother, who's like 45 at the time, his wife and two kids. I was 12 and they were like six and seven. So they were right. like closer to brothers right. age-wise while my actual brother was closer to like a parental figure. Yeah. And he was the chosen one for this role because he did, was doing the best like financially and he had a corporate job and plenty of money and a boat. And I moved in with him from the age of 12. And you know we went through the appeals and each right. one got denied. And although I never asked my dad, I'm like straight up. And we went to, you know, I went to visit him. He was in Fort Worth jail for a year and he was in Amarillo for a couple years. And they moved him down south to Lake Livingston, which is close to Houston, uh, to a unit down there. I never just straight up asked him, um, probably just out of youth and not actually wanting to know that answer. Right. But now I probably would have. But now I kind of don't even need to. Because there was so much motive now that I can see. Right. And I'll, I'll go to my grave not knowing for sure one way or the other. What's your gut tell you? Well, I know there's a lot of insurance money on the line. A lot. 
that yeah. he didn't get because he went to jail and, right. it, and it went to me. Right. There was also, my mother had been having an affair for about seven years too, which my father found out about. More motive. My mother's boyfriend was getting closer and more buddy-buddy to me and started, was kind of like taking me on trips and buying right. me things. And my dad had never once in his life not been, and, and we skipped over a detail that I'll just kind of inject real quick for the yeah. story. And that was like, I told you, my dad was a bookie. Right, yeah. My dad yeah. was a was a bookie. Whenever I grew up, my mom worked for T- Texas, uh, TXU, which was uh, Texas Utilities and Customer Service, um, like just a regular job. But my dad was already retired from working for the Star Telegram newspaper, and he was a bookie, like a hardcore bookie. And we had all kinds of characters in and out of my house. I've seen millions of dollars in cash laid out on the floor in my house. But I don't know. I, I and and maybe I'm I'm a little naive, but I don't know that everybody realizes what a bookie did did back then. Because I still now don't it's not actually a, know exactly what a bookie does. It has something to do with like if you want to make a bet, yep. and I want to make a bet. They're the middleman. Like they're the middleman on a bet. This guy, like we both pay this guy, yep. and then like if I lose, he makes sure the money goes yep. to you, but he takes a cut. And then if they don't pay each other, then they send goons out to like break kneecaps or something it's like some, that. It's some 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 crazy yeah hardcore underground gambling shit. It, like I know, like it really is. There's some like yeah I've got some I know uh, tailoring your work actually as best as, as you can yeah, as best as I can <laughs> he's passed away yeah. Um, so yeah there's been yeah. bookies that I, I don't I'm not necessarily gonna say was in my family but yeah. we like I I understand yeah. uh, so so not to the not to the extreme that that you know yes obviously yeah so so my dad was like a hardcore bookie so and, how and, did you like did you learn this after the fact did you no I actually I, I knew this this was like common knowledge I just did I don't think I knew what he was doing was illegal but he had right. an office in the house and we had this like. We had, we built this brand new house that was like seventy thousand dollars, and in nineteen eighty one, like I mean, that's a yeah. baller yeah. house. Yeah, and uh, built it from scratch, and there was all these people in and out of my house all day, and I would walk into my dad's office, and there would just be stacks of hundred dollar bills, you know, on the ground like this, and just like covering the entire floor, people in and out, and uh, he actually got busted one time. I was playing my Sega Genesis at the time. And the front door damn near came off the fucking hinges. Like, it got booted in. And, like, all these cops ran in with guns everywhere while I'm playing Sega Genesis. One of them looked like one of those Canadian mounted police. Like, a fucking, like, khakis <laughs> and red shirt. Like, yeah. a big, like, like 10-gallon yeah. hat. But what I was getting at... Wait a minute. Did... They arrested him. Yeah, they arrested him. Okay, and he, he and, goes away, and he got like like for a day. Okay, and and, and he's back out, out sure, and then whatever. like, I, and that's it. I, I, yeah, because I don't know, like, well, I don't know, like how, how, like how bad, like of a of a penalty it is for racketeering. I don't know yeah, if that's I like. Know. I guess it's more like just like tax evasion. Plus, it's illegal to like cast bets, like yeah. something like that. But it was like a like a financial kind of yep. like crime. So I I don't know how that got handled. Um, I think the murder charge actually came up next and then that charge probably just got like like you know they're just like oh we're not going to worry yeah, about charging like we're not for even that think because about this anymore right and and I think they probably like pretty much like close to uh, drop the charges but what I was really getting at is as far as motive for my mother's murder is that 
my father for the first time ever was living in a one bedroom apartment. He was broke. He didn't have any money. He didn't have a pretty 24 year old wife. Everything was gone. Everything was gone and he was getting older and the shit was not good. And my mom had a younger man who is now her boyfriend. And I think my dad was worrying because you know how a lot of laws are, especially in Texas, whenever it comes to child custody and supporting things yeah. like that, they really favor uh, the female. Yeah. Um, especially if they're younger. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure that my dad thought that it wasn't too much of a stretch to think that they were going to take me, take the money. Yeah go somewhere else. Yeah. And then he would just sit alone. He was going to lose it all. He'd lose it all and eventually just die alone because he's 65 at this right. point in time. So uh, whenever I look at it now, I see all the motive. Mm-hmm. I can't help but think, was there really just some psycho dude that just like came into my mom's house and like killed her one night for absolutely no reason and he's never been caught since right like that just doesn't make sense to any, me like was there leads was there any yeah i mean yeah and, and now we're, we're, we're going off of just what's been disclosed to me whenever i right. was 12 years old but uh yeah there uh while i was at this football game for like three hours there was uh a guy that said that he saw a guy my dad's height and build and like bright white hair kind of jogging down the road from where her car was found. Uh, and that was really big. Not to mention um, there was his handprints like on the back of her car. There was uh, blood on some of the bottom of his shoes. And growing up, like I'm getting all, you know, I'm hearing this stuff, but like whenever you just love your dad so much, you're just coming up with as much like logical reasons yep. as to how that could happen. Cause like I told you, we picked the locks that night and we went into her house and we walked through the house and the lights were dim. Like we could have walked through some blood on the ground and then, yep. but no, you know what I'm saying? No. Right. Now as, a, prob- now as an adult, you look at it different. Right. Exactly. So with that, you know, with that being said, my dad goes away at 12. Uh, I'm raised by my brother. Uh, after that, um, and I just never, and, and I was crushed. Right. I mean, I was crying all the time in the shower so that way nobody would hear me. Yeah. You know, I'm just broken as a 12 year old, you know, like just defeated. And, uh, but I didn't lose my interest in exercising and sports. Your outlet. Yeah. I didn't lose that. And that, ended up becoming my saving grace. I made it all the way to a, a senior in high school at Western Hills in West Fort Worth, and 9-11 happened my senior year. Told you it was going to blow your mind. Crazy thing is, we're just getting started. And if you think you know exactly where this is headed, think again. Make sure you tune in next episode when I continue my conversation with Dustin Snow.